You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects' Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects' Journal. Welcome to Climate Champions, where we offer inspiration and share essential knowledge about design in an era of climate emergency. With my co-host, George Morgan, we're speaking to changemakers and innovators who are transforming architecture as we know it by designing in ways that respect planetary boundaries. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, director of 1.5 Architecture. I think the challenge of sustainability is one of the most interesting and creative aspects of what we do in architecture. And I can't really understand why architects aren't pushing harder on what it could herald in terms of architecture. I think it's fantastically creative if you take it on board rather than try and ignore it or avoid it. Our guest today is Sarah Wigglesworth of Sarah Wigglesworth Architects, long known for her pioneering approach to sustainability, starting with the design of her own home, Stock Orchard Street in Islington, North London. Completed 20 years ago, Sarah's home office has recently undergone a major retrofit, which cut carbon emissions by 62% and halved the building's infiltration rate. In this conversation, Sarah describes her first deep dive into passive house modeling, the building performance analysis which helped set the priorities for the retrofit, and how our understanding of sustainability has evolved over the last two decades. Our second guest today is Ben Yates, one of the coordinators of the Architects Climate Action Network's education group. ACAN Education has been incredibly active the last few months, and Ben describes the group's current work streams and what's coming up in 2021. Sarah, I'm going to assume that many of our listeners are familiar with your work, but for anyone who is not, I would refer them to your excellent book, Around and About Stock Orchard Street, one of my all-time favorites, which, among other things, has a wonderful photo of you in the Cotswolds, standing amidst the hay bales that eventually became part of your house. Or, for a quick overview, see my AJ article, Is This the Most Influential House of a Generation?, when I revisited the house exactly five years ago. You mentioned then that it was time for a retrofit, and now you've done it, completing in late 2020. Can you describe your process and how you set the priorities for the retrofit? Yes. Well, we'd been living in Stockholm Street for about 15 years, and we were thinking that it needed a bit of a facelift, really. You know, it needed painting and all that stuff. And the roof had started to leak a little bit, and we weren't sure why. So we began to sort of formulate a plan for how we might go about, you know, improving it. And because green stuff has moved on so much since we designed it in the mid to late 90s 
we thought it was a real opportunity to sort of do a bit of forensic investigation into how it was actually performing. What had happened in the green movement, I guess, is that, you know, software has massively improved. Products are much more widely available. And I think we know about building physics much more now than we did at that point. So that seemed a real opportunity to really get to grips with the building physics, whilst trying to preserve the things that we really enjoyed about the building. And it was that enjoyment that led to the second bit of the project, because following the work that I led um, in researching, designing for later life at Sheffield, when I was professor there, um, got very interested in how we can make age-friendly environments and Jeremy and I are in our very early 60s at the moment and we were sort of coming up to that at the point when we were thinking about this project and we thought well if we're going to do a retrofit why don't we think about how to make the building more age-friendly as well so we thought it was an opportunity to sort of roll these two studies together so there was a sort of 20 plus and thinking about also 20 years forward uh, 60 plus in a way so what we did was we decided to spend a couple of years investigating the building physics and we appointed a firm of environmental consultants called Enhabit. And they did a series of tests on the building, monitoring what was going on. So they did air tightness tests. They made thermal imaging. They measured the U values in the walls to compare with what we were aiming at when we first designed it. They analyse all our energy bills going back over sort of 10 years. And they build a passive house model to monitor the recorded energy use with the predictive energy use. And it's clear, isn't it, that if you wanted to design a passive house building, you certainly wouldn't start from ours. For a kickoff, we've got cold bridging really across the building through the fact that it's all made out of steel. At the time we were building it, we were thinking about... Um, Walter Siegel's style of breathing walls and stuff like that. And we didn't really pay much attention to things like air tightness. They just really weren't that much on the agenda. So it was really trying to work out what could we do with the existing structure to try and improve it as best we could. But using the pacifiers model to, in a sense, try and close the performance gap, which was, I would say, a problem. And we have made various improvements over the years, like putting in solar shading on the southwest facade and planting trees to shade it in the summer, things like that. But it's clear that we could do a lot better. And after all, I mean, you've got to bear in mind that we designed it to the 1996 building regulations or something. So it is quite sort of historic in a way. And I think it's it's been really interesting to work on a project which is not very old but still you're retrofitting it you know it's not a Victorian or 19th century building or even a historic building it's very modern and that's uh, its own challenge so essentially following the um, the data that Inhabit garnered we drew up a list of things that we could do and did a cost-benefit analysis so that for example we had a polycarbonate roof over the entire entrance lobby and they established that was leaking like a sieve and that if we replace that roof with something solid with some roof lights in and all air tightness taped and so forth we would save 10 percent of what we lost through air infiltration so that was a no-brainer you know uh, so we did this list and we came up with a number of things that we could do we replaced some windows 
We re-insulated under the building where we were getting some heat transference through the steel beams. We re-insulated the tower, which was beginning to leak. And that also helps because we've got our library in the tower. So that helps keep it warm and dry. We replaced the boiler actually to make it better functioning and we replaced both of our mechanical ventilation and heat recovery systems because the kit has got so much better. So it was a sort of raft of things and it was improvements to the fabric, things that we couldn't afford to do at the time, like a decent floor throughout the whole building. And in the 60 plus improvements, we we actually got rid of one really eco thing, which was our composting toilet, <laughs> which was a bit of a, an act of faith at the time. And I, I can't really fault it, except it is quite hard work. And we figured that in our 80s, we wouldn't really want to be having to sort of turn what the contents of it um, through a very small gap. And we decided to get rid of that and replace it with just a normal toilet. And that meant that we could release space in our utility room. And that became a kitchen. So that uh, the whole of the ground floor suite is now pretty much a self-contained space like a one bed flat for the future carer if we need it. And has it changed, for example, the roof lights in lieu of the polycarbonate roof, the quality of light or your enjoyment of the house? How how would you articulate the change in feel? Yeah, good question. Well, it, of course, it has reduced the amount of daylight a little bit, but in a way, it hasn't been a significant change, interestingly enough. And daylight is one of the things that we really enjoy about the building. It's got really beautiful daylight. Everybody remarks on it when they visit it. And of course, the light changes a lot because it's dappled and it's very dependent on your kind of the sense of being half indoors, half outdoors as well. So that sort of contact with nature, which is actually so good for your well-being anyway, is very present even within the building. But generally speaking, the improvements in terms of kind of emotions and your sense of what the building's like, it just feels so much more comfortable. It feels really cosy for the first time instead of leaky. I mean, it really does feel like I'm living in a grown-up house for the first time rather than camping. (laughs) I mean, I was brought up in a Victorian house, of course, with drafty windows and all of the rest of it. So in a way, one's used to it. But I must say the difference is quite remarkable. And when Inhabit came back to do some monitoring of the finished building, I mean, we'd halved the amount of uncontrolled infiltration. And we had reduced our carbon emissions by 62%, which is quite remarkable, really. I mean, we spent quite a lot of time, you know, taping up all sorts of bits and pretty much pulling the whole building apart and putting it back together in its sort of major areas. But at the same time, it has made a really appreciable difference. So I'm very pleased with it. And I'm very pleased to know that in future, you know, I can stay put here and know that I will be able to live safe and secure into my fourth age. Has this way of designing with this evidence base of data rather than more intuitively, what's your take on that? Is that something you will now take forward into your future work? Oh, totally. And um, we are working now with Inhabit on a couple more retrofits and the data is critical. So, you know, at the beginning, we will go in and do the monitoring and then use that to help us decide what areas to target and 
how to shape the project around what we know about what's really happening. I mean, it is complicated. And that's where I think the data is really helpful because it does get it away from being just intuitive. But I'm also very interested in how we make the right decisions, not just for the building physics, but for the you know, management capability of the client, for example. No good putting loads of kit in if they can't use it or don't know how to control it. Keeping things simple, you know, sticking with the sort of ethos perhaps of the original architecture, particularly if it's a conservation area or historic building, you know, actually the challenges of how to deal with windows, which you can't change easily and things like that, because those are the weak spots. But also the comfort conditions that people are after as well, making sure that they still love it, still value it, and therefore they're going to look after it because that's part of the, you know, it's it's the interface with people really, which is the bit that we haven't really got right. Too many buildings sort of chase the technology and they don't figure in the interface with people, the people who've got to manage and use it and can understand the controls and things like that. Because, I mean, in a way, I think of buildings as being a bit like a piece of clothing. You know, it's the next layer past your body, which is the buffer between you and the environment outside, isn't it? And, uh, you know, just like you take off a jumper or you put on a cardigan or whatever, you can control those things with your on your person. But you also can do that with the building as well. And I think buildings which have very high levels of sort of technology can be very disempowering for people, actually. And we need to think about that more carefully. And we found in schools, for example, that... Typically, you've got a caretaker who might be, um, you know, a gardener or they've come from another uh, discipline, but then they're certainly not building physicists. And if you present them with a building management system, they typically can't use it and it's not easy for them. And so it falls into disrepair and then everything stops working and people get very disillusioned with the capabilities of something like green buildings. And before you know where you're, you're hiding to nothing. So I do think it has to inflect towards the you know, management capabilities and daily rituals of the people using the buildings as well. So what's your take on Passive House after this experience? I believe this was your first run through with Passive House planning package. I think the modeling is incredibly useful because I think it does really help us to understand how buildings really work physically and to try and close the performance gap. But sometimes I find passive house buildings, I mean, if you really follow the logic of the physics, I think you can end up with buildings that can be a bit soulless. But I don't know whether that's just because, you know, maybe I don't really like the designs or I think that the physics has taken over. But I think things like making sure you get nice daylight because that's really makes you feel you love your place and helps your well-being needs to be tempered with what the physics is telling you, which is that you probably need to shade that window if it's facing south or, you know, reduce the size of it if it's facing north. So I think you need to take it all on board and find the solutions which follow the logic of what is telling you. But I don't think that necessarily means it's, you know, it's no excuse for bad architecture, I suppose. That's what I mean. And of course, I think what past us is doing is it's making us question what are the principles of a good architecture you know and we're going through a transitional phase at the moment where you know we've been used to thinking and I would say our building here in Stock Orchard Street does this a little bit you know it's based on modernist tropes which don't have regard to climate and I think we're adjusting our outlook 
because of that. So I'm aware that I'm applying a, a kind of um, aesthetic policing of what we're doing, which is probably a bit old fashioned and needs to shift a bit. But I think there aren't enough architects who are really taking on board the logic of it and seeing it as a, a provocation to being inventive and creative. And if you take something like our gabion walls here, which are filled with recycled concrete, or the fact even that many of our walls here are made out of straw. I mean, I remember the horror that lots of architects had when they saw that, because aesthetically it's a bit challenging if you're a modernist. But actually the logic was, you know, we were looking for waste streams and how to build them into an architecture. And that is the result of using straightforward waste streams in your project. And I don't apologize for that. I think that's part of the shift that we're having to make to think about how we get a circular economy back into what we do. Because in terms of the logic of, of Passive House, the modelling that you've been through would have shown that there's quite a lot of surface area in your house. And then the sort of logic of Passive House is to get the best form factor and reduce the surface area as much as possible. So is that something you're thinking about in your, in your current housing projects of how to balance the design aspiration with the logic of Passive House? Oh, yeah, most definitely. So in the um, housing scheme we're designing in South Yorkshire, we were trying to do that by making the buildings in rows of houses, you know, minimum sort of 10, so that we were trying to reduce the volume to surface ratio of the buildings, whereas a typical developer might come along and maybe make uh, individual houses or semi-Ds or something like that, where there's much more surface area around it. So that was the logic. Obviously, in our building here, you know, if we wanted to design passes, we wouldn't have started from here. All that surface area is a nightmare. So you couldn't possibly have achieved the full thing. But in the retrofits, I mean, I think some of the issues are similar, which is, you know, we're working in some early Victorian, sort of almost on the cusp of Georgian buildings in Islington. And there the issues are that it's a conservation area. The windows rattle around and are incredibly leaky, but they're the weak spot in many ways. And the planning department will have trouble getting their head around what do we do about putting double glazing in or should we put secondary glazing in? You know, it will change the appearance of what's visible on the outside. And that's a difficult question for them because, you know, what takes precedence are climate change commitments or the conservation area appearance, you know? It's a very tricky one. And I think they haven't really come to the point where they've understood that perhaps if we are going to keep to these commitments, we're going to have to change the appearance of these buildings. Not to say it can't be done subtly, and most people probably wouldn't see much difference, but it is a change, and if you want to preserve heritage, that's an issue. And what are the main things you've taken forward into your future work from this experience of working with Inhabit? I think I've become a stronger advocate for everything being green. I mean, really do, and using the Passive planning package to help you understand how the building physics works. We still find persuading clients to do this kind of thing quite difficult. And there's a common perception it's much more expensive and so forth. I, I suspect it is a little bit more expensive. But I mean, for the sake of the planet, you can't really weigh those things up, can you? I think it's really urgent that we do address all of these issues. I think where I feel most powerless is um, that we don't get manufacturers responding 
as quickly as I think they should to, you know, the green economy, the circular economy and so forth. And it's difficult to specify products which are very, very niche. And until people get on board to make these things more commonplace, so they become absolutely second nature, it remains a little bit marginal. Building regs don't really help at the moment. I think the conversations around how we use sticks and carrots to nudge behaviour change is quite problematic. I think the challenge of sustainability is one of the most interesting and creative aspects of what we do in architecture. And I can't really understand why architects aren't pushing harder on what it could herald in terms of architecture. I think it's fantastically creative if you take it on board rather than try and ignore it or avoid it. <laughs> because visually, quite a lot of your work is quite enthusiastic looking and quite free. Like one of my favourite projects of yours is the Sandal Magna uh, Primary School with its exposed structure and exposed services. And there's an atmosphere almost like an art school where you can do anything. What's the relationship between the aesthetic and sustainability for you? Are they separate things or not? No, not at all. As I said about Stock Orchard Street, we were looking for what products might be out there which could demonstrate a different way of thinking and doing. So things like waste streams, recycled materials that would get built into the project have become quite a, I guess, a, an interest for us. And I think schools do offer that because in many cases they're an educational environment, so the buildings themselves can be an education and we've done that at Mossbrook School, at Mellor School and at Sandal Magna that you mentioned, trying to sort of use the building as a demonstrator, really, of a way of existing and to garner interest in it. Because school isn't just all about sitting at a desk and listening to a teacher or even reading a book. It's actually demonstrated all around you. And I, I do very much think that if a school has an ethos that they want to be green, then the building itself should be part of the teaching tools that are being used. And so does the management of the school. So how you get kids to use water or recycle their paper or where they get their supplies from and how they, how they treat the environment around them and use, say, the natural environment in the school playground as a teaching tool as well you know all of these things feed into the curriculum that's really great so sarah i know you've always been quite critical of some of the environmental certifications such as briam saying that they absolve architects from thinking through what really needs to be done and there are many frameworks out there sometimes clients have their own frameworks how do you lead a client towards what you think is the best solution for a project? I mean, the reason I'm critical of tick box approaches is that I think it can be an unnuanced conversation and it doesn't work for everybody. Often clients don't really understand what it involves for them in the legacy, if you like, when we've gone and, you know, we've got the award or whatever it is. It could give them spaces that are never used and not useful to them at all. Or it could give them a maintenance headache or it could be really expensive to look after, kit that needs replacing or stuff that they just don't understand how to use. So I think you've really got to think about these things because otherwise it's going to give green a really bad name. And I think that's really unhelpful. The other thing about certification is, you know, that Certified products go with the certification and they come at a premium, sort of 10, 20% uplift on cost. 
And, you know, you can do the same with a different piece of kit, but it just doesn't have the same certification and therefore you don't get the T-shirt. And that's disappointing for a client. So do you see a shift in your clients in the past couple of years with Architects Declare and climate emergency much more in the ether? Are people thinking differently or is, is there a greater appetite for these solutions? I think there definitely is. And I think there's a lot of government sponsorship of things like money for social housing decarbonisation fund, those kinds of sort of competition type things with trying to do retrofit at scale, for example, are really helpful because they will move the whole thing forward from single dwellings or niche things into more mainstream. I think the difficulty is will the industry be able to respond to that? And including will we have the... Uh, personnel in the construction industry who are able to deliver. I mean, I personally think that we are moving away, especially if we're going to really address retrofit, which is 80% of our building stock, you know, we're going to have to revive the sort of craft of architecture because it's so nuanced and so specialist in how you unpick a building and put it back in a different way. And particularly if it's a listed or it's a heritage or conservation area. We are going to have to see a real upskilling in the building industry and a sort of renewed interest in the craft of architecture as a result of that. I think the sort of era of huge industrialised manufactured buildings is potentially over. And in a way, I think architecture, you know, at its best has always been a little bit about taking products a bit like sampling music, you know, taking products, sticking them together. But it's the joints that always are the problems. And that's where all of this air leakage and, you know, water ingress and all the leakage comes in buildings. So addressing those kinds of things, sort of how we put things together, is really, really important. So we recently spoke to uh, Sophie Pelsmakers, who, among many other things, wrote the Environmental Design Pocketbook. Uh, she was saying that we need an architecture that doesn't just focus on narrow areas of sustainability, like energy and use, and that we need an architecture on steroids that does everything. In your practice's work, there's some really interesting exploration of how these ideas come together to suggest a different kind of lifestyle, like moves to bring neighbours together and your housing schemes and retirement schemes for Pegasus Life. And you're surrounded by biodiversity and we walk and cycle instead of driving and that frees up spaces to play. So with lockdown, a lot of us have been living differently and questioning what's really important. Are you hopeful that more people will embrace lifestyle changes? Of course I am. <laughs> um, and I personally feel that it has been a bit of a wake-up call during COVID, and I'm really pleased to see that. I think what's disappointing is since people relaxed a little bit, or maybe they didn't relax a bit because this is the cause, um, they've got back into their cars and, you know, air pollution has gone up again, traffic levels have gone up again. And I look around me and I see a really, really car-dominated world. And I do think that's a bit of a shame because, I mean, a car is a sort of isolating unit, isn't it? When we really have found we appreciate a lot of us coming together and it's possible to do that without having to get in a little, little box. I think it would be really nice to see clients provide more incentive for people to use sort of shared transport options like that. Maybe it's a an electric shared vehicle or something like that, rather than, you know, hit the planning policy, which is two cars in your front yard. It's often policy which we're up against. I mean, in that particular example as well, we're trying to do 
uh, porous paving and SUD scheme. And the local authority have said that they are not interested and they don't have any plans to change their attitude to black tarmac. <laughs> so, you know, it's very, very difficult trying to drive the agenda. But we, we try and fight the fight and sort of change attitudes through the work that we do. And I think hopefully we have a little bit of an effect. But I think being a pioneer is, I mean, not that we're that pioneering. I wouldn't say we are, but just trying to shift received behaviour is very, very hard Anna Lee Rich has talked quite a bit about this in the context of the Velo City scheme, really looking at how to tie up rail stations that are actually very close, like this thing of you know having to drive three kilometers to get a pint of milk, and and how you can maybe start to shift. I mean, it's not an overnight thing; it's not even a three to five year thing, but it is a generational thing to shift, you know, and rethink so you're not in your car every single time you need to get something. Yes. I mean, we've been working a bit over the last few years at um, Ebbsfleet Healthy Garden City, where, you know, we've been helping them write their neighbourhood planning principles to help nudge developers into thinking a new way about how to make the environment there. Because with the tag, a healthy garden city, I mean, it has various connotations that are both aesthetic, but also lifestyle choices. And there we're trying to nudge behaviour away from the two to three car per dwelling type of development which is what's in planning policy at the moment away from that and provide alternatives which are going to help people make the right healthy choices for their lifestyle but it's very difficult when the infrastructure going in is basically big roads and new dual carriageways and you know huge car parks and stuff like that so it's a tough battle I think. That is where we need to make the change at that level as well as at the building level. So one last question, you've touched on it a little bit, but do you have any further observations on sustainable design 20 years ago when you first built your house to where things have moved to today? Well, I suppose the biggest change is it's now on people's radars. It needs to get into legislation more heavily, but a lot of people like sort of Letty and things are you know, trying to push the agenda much more widespreadly. So that's really, really good. And I think the younger generation is a groundswell of movement now, which is making it very hard to ignore. I think the software available and things like the Pacifiers planning package, they are making it much more easy to bridge the, the performance gap. And it's a really useful tool. I think the question is really perhaps what designers do with that information and to to really understand it and take it on board and still create really beautiful architecture. Personally, that's always been a fantastic challenge and it would be lovely to see more architects really take it on board very, very seriously so that all of this stuff becomes far more mainstream and just part of the conversation. So we don't really have to think about it anymore it's just natural you know it just becomes part of everyday worlds that we're operating in that would be lovely to see thank you very much sarah i think that's a great place to stop thank you (laughs) thank you Our second guest today is Ben Yates, one of the coordinators of the ACAN Education Group. Ben, it's great to have you on the podcast today to hear about the work of the ACAN Education Group, which has been extremely active in the last few months. 
Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and why you joined ACAN? Yeah, so I'm now one of four coordinators for ACAN Education, having joined about a year ago. I graduated my part two in 2019, and I realised that I'd finished five years of architectural education completely unaware of the urgency of our situation in the climate emergency, and that I was woefully unequipped to handle it. So I wanted to make sure that nobody else fell through the net, so to speak. What campaigns do you have underway and what are your work streams? So at the moment, we've got two campaigns. There's the climate curriculum campaign aiming to improve levels of climate literacy in schools of architecture and students can, which supports students in setting up action groups at their respective universities. As for our work streams, we've carried out a student survey. We've written an education toolkit. We're being published in a new Reba publication, which Sophie Pelsmakers and Nick Newman have put together. But so far, most of our action has been in the form of workshops where we aim to get the conversation started. And going into the virtual world has actually really helped us out here. We held three over the summer for 160 tutors from 17 different universities and then also for 30 heads of schools. And we're now offering them to galvanise student groups who are keen to take action. So there's been a proliferation of student groups springing up at different schools. Which student groups are most active and what are they pushing for? Yeah, there's about 12 now across the UK. And that's up from what I think was only about four this time last year. Climate action is really becoming more and more mainstream. And I think being in lockdown has accelerated awareness. And it really goes to show the mental health benefits of collective action as well, I think. So there's AA Action, who held some fantastic lectures over the summer. The newly formed We Can at UE, the University of West England. Queen's Belfast has QCAN who formed off the back of our first campaign, which was fantastic for us. And then Sheffield Students for Climate Action have been around for a couple of years now and are gathering some serious momentum. I think they had 80 new sign-ons in September. Uh, That's by no means all of them. I'm definitely missing some there, of course. But all they're really asking for fundamentally is that the climate emergency be treated with the importance it deserves in their teaching. And they really want the tools to combat the climate emergency desperately. It's wildly undervalued in the curriculum at the moment. And this is the generation who will now likely be qualifying by the time we hit 2030, by which time we are supposed to have halved our carbon emissions. Which schools are leading the way? There are certainly some who are doing a better job than others. But I think to name any particular university would undermine the collective effort that we've been encouraging in our workshops. We're massive advocates for collective action and we really want to make sure that universities are collaborating and sharing knowledge with each other rather than competing. The universities who are handling it best are those who have integrated the climate emergency into every aspect of their teaching. It's not treated as a specialism. Their tutors are making themselves visible climate activists standing alongside their students and they've declared a climate emergency. They're teaching climate awareness in first year. They're offering live builds with sustainable materials, environmental ethics in history and theory modules, supporting interdisciplinary projects that mirror life in practice. They have technology tutors in each design studio regularly interrogating the sustainability principles of your project. And if your project isn't retrofit, why is that? 
the fact is students are now choosing where they apply based on a, stu- on a school's commitment to the climate emergency and it's a massive deal breaker so if you're not dealing with it at a university then you really should be questioning that. That is major progress. That's amazing. So what do you have coming up in the next few months and how can our listeners get involved? So I'd highly recommend looking at our education toolkit, which you can find on our website. It includes everything I've just mentioned and so much more. And if you're a student listening to this, we're offering our students can workshops with the wonderful Scott McCauley. So if you're keen to start an action group of your own, please email us at education at architectscan.org with the subject students can we can get started fantastic and what else is going on at ACAN at the moment so our circular economies group is hosting a series of lunchtime talks each of which is addressing how to integrate circular principles at each reba stage the first of these we are hosting duncan baker brown to take on stage zero and then the embodied carbon group are doing some fantastic work They've also got a new campaign on the go. Uh, they are lobbying policymakers to write in whole life carbon caps, which I hope you'll agree is really, really important work. If you want to get involved, the best way to get in touch with us is at our email address, education at architectscan.org. And we can add you to one of our, our plethora of WhatsApp groups. Yeah, we'd really love to hear from you. Thank you very much, Ben. Thanks, Hattie. In our next episode, the last in Series 1 of Climate Champions, Berlin-based architect Anna Herringer describes the urgency to find innovative solutions that enable a new architectural language. She explains why earthen architecture, building with mud, offers super sustainability and recyclability and is as relevant in the global north as it is in emerging economies. You can find out more on the Climate Champions webpage at architectsjournal.co.uk where you can also send comments and subscribe. Thanks for listening.